Uh, Go ahead and get out your Bibles and get out the handout sheet that you received when you walked in, or if you're following along on the app, you can go ahead and turn that on, and we can begin. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 4 this morning, which if you're using a Bible underneath the seat in front of you, is on page 982. That's page 982. We are in part 7, the final part of a series called Ambassadors for the Kingdom, and this message is called The Mind of an ambassador, the mind of an ambassador. Throughout this series, we've been talking about this idea that followers of Jesus are quite literally ambassadors of the kingdom of God here on earth. Paul even says in a a verse we're going to look at here in a second, he says that our citizenship is in heaven, that we are citizens of heaven who are then called to represent heaven here on earth. And something that Pastor Lance has been saying throughout the series is that the best ambassador is one who embodies their home country, right? This this is true in the world, in diplomacy. If an ambassador is going to be effective as they're sent out by their country to be an ambassador in a foreign country, they need to embody the values of their home country. They need to know about the interests of their home country. And in a similar way, If we're going to be effective ambassadors of the kingdom of God on this earth, we need to be able to embody that kingdom. We need to be formed by that kingdom so that we can be representatives of that kingdom in our world today. So as we wrap up the series, we're going to go through the last chapter of Philippians. And there is so much in this last chapter, so many different angles we could come at this chapter from. But the angle that I want to look at this morning is I want to talk about what does this chapter have to tell us? about having a mind that is formed by the kingdom of God? What does this chapter teach us about our minds and how they can be formed in such a way that we can be effective ambassadors? And if you're following along, here's the fill in the blank. It's, It's simply this. Our mindset matters. Our mindset matters. Our mind, our thoughts matter. God cares about our thoughts and he cares about our minds because he cares about our lives. There is all sorts of research in the field of psychology to back up the idea that our thoughts and the things that we think about and the things that we give our attention to and then obviously the things that we believe influence our attitudes and our behaviors in profound ways. One concept you likely know about if you've taken any classes in psychology is the concept of confirmation bias, right? That you and I, we are hardwired to seek out and accept information that confirms what we already believe, right? And it can be very difficult for us to engage with material or information that challenges what we already believe. Now, the implications for that are are, are far-reaching, but as it pertains to what we're talking about this morning, here's why confirmation bias matters, is that if you believe that God is no longer at work in the world and that God is absent, you are going to fixate and focus on information that backs up that belief. If you believe that you have nothing to offer in the kingdom of God and that God has only gifted other people and you're just little old you, you're going to fixate on evidence that would back up that claim and you're going to miss the work of God in your midst. You're going you're to overlook the ways that God has gifted you. But if you believe that God is present and at work, if you believe that we can have hope and joy and peace because Jesus is alive, if you believe that God is working in your life and in your family and in your school and in your job and in your neighborhood, you're going to be paying attention and you're going to be noticing the work of God in your midst. 
because you're paying attention to it. Our thoughts matter. We don't think things into being. I'm not suggesting that at all. But our thoughts matter because they affect what we pay attention to. They affect our interactions with other people. They affect so much of our lives. And the fact of the matter is, you and I, before we can live the way that God who loves us and God who cares about our joy more than you do, before we can live the way that God wants us to live, we have to learn to think the way that God wants us to think. So as we work through Philippians 4, there's so much, like I said, going on in the chapter, but we're going to look at it through the angle of what does it tell us about how God wants us to think? What does it tell us about the mindset of an ambassador? Because here, here's the other thing. Some of us, this is a time of year where we're getting ready to go into the new year and a lot of us will maybe evaluate the old year and we make New Year's resolutions or we have new things we want to do as we move forward. Some of us, we've tried to make changes to our behavior in the past and they haven't stuck. And part of the reason why the behavioral changes don't stick is we don't address the mindset that is underlying those behaviors. Some of us, if we're going to make real changes in our lives, we have to be able to adjust our mindset. We have to change our minds before we can change our lives. And the good news is that God invites us to draw closer to him so that he can be the one who begins to transform our minds. He can be the one who begins to, the Bible says, renew our minds. Help us to think in a manner that is in line with the kingdom of God so that we can live in the manner of the kingdom of God. And I need to be very clear about one thing before we get into the text, is that we're going to go through and we're going to talk about nine aspects of the, mind, of the mind of an ambassador, and I know that's a lot. But these are not spiritual merit badges that we earn, right? These are not signs of religious performance where we're trying to check things off a list and accomplish different things. Rather, I want you to hear these things as nine promises from God. Promises from God saying, this is, what I, this is how I will form your mind if you draw near to me. If you center your life around me, this is how I will form you. I, I, we need to be very clear, this is not about performance. This is about receiving God's blessing as he seeks to form our minds. So with that, I want to actually start in chapter 3, verse 20, just to give us a little bit of context. But then we'll get into Philippians chapter 4. It says this. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved." And you could see, even in that verse, Paul's deep affection for the people he is writing to. You're my joy and my crown. You're my beloved. I know you're, he's telling them, you're in a difficult environment where there are challenges to your faith. I want you to know how to stand firm. And that's, and that's what he's going to address here in the chapter. And so much of what he has to say talks about the mindset of a person who can stand firm and represent Christ in a difficult and hostile environment. So let's keep going. Verse 2. He says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask that you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. First thing, the mind of an ambassador is agreeable. 
The mind of an ambassador is agreeable, or if you're taking notes, maybe you might want to write next to that, a mind of an ambassador seeks unity, is agreeable or seeks unity. Now, we have to understand the context of this letter. So Paul writes, has written the letter, and he gives it to his friend, probably his friend Epaphroditus, who's mentioned in the letter, and then Epaphroditus brings it to the Philippians, and they read it in church. That's how everybody heard the contents of the letter. It was read out loud in the church, and Euodia and Syntyche are part of the church. Like, they're in the room when this letter is being read. So Paul's going through and sharing all this awesome, incredible truth about who Jesus is and citizenship is in heaven and la-di-da, and then it's uh, Euodia and Syntyche. Knock it off. <laughs> Sound a little awkward to anybody else, right? Euodia means lucky. Syntyche means success. For whatever reason, luck and success had a hard time getting along. And I know you're going to have a really hard time believing this, but this is what was going on. There was a church, and there were two women in the church who didn't get along with each other. Just imagine what that's like. I know we can't possibly relate, right? But 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 here's, here's the deal. Paul is simply saying to them, I need you to work through whatever it is you got going on. And he even says, my beloved companion, which some people think that is a reference to a specific person. He's saying, hey, you need to help them. Sometimes the work of reconciliation and agreeableness and unity requires a third party, right? And what's interesting to me is these are, it says right here in the text, like these are not bad women. These are not troublemaking women. These are leaders who had labored alongside Paul and for whatever reason, something had come between them. And Paul's saying, I need you to fight for unity, Pastor Lance has talked about that throughout this series. It's a major theme of Philippians, and I I just want to ask you, are you somebody who, when a fence comes up, are you somebody who, when something doesn't go your way, are you somebody who, when you you hear something you don't agree with, are you somebody who's going to create problems, or are you someone who's going to fight for unity? See, we don't have to agree on everything to be agreeable. And in a world that is so fractured and divided, part of the way we can testify and witness to the power of Christ is the way that we can be united and we can be agreeable even though we're not all the same, right? The mind of an ambassador is agreeable. Verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. The mind of an ambassador is joyful, the mind of an ambassador is joyful. Joy is another main theme of Philippians. The, 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 the idea of joy or rejoicing is mentioned 16 times in the letter. And it's important to recognize, Paul did not write this letter sitting by the pool sipping a lemonade, right? Rejoice in the Lord always, my life is awesome. In fact, I remember, I've been to Europe once in my life. It was when I was 22 years old, at the very end of college, I did a study abroad in Spain. And at the end of the study abroad in Spain, I took a train to Switzerland, and the rest of my family flew over and met me in Switzerland, and we spent two weeks traveling around Europe. It was incredible. And during the time that I was in Spain, Christy, who was then my girlfriend and is now my wife, was doing a study abroad in Prague, and she and some friends were traveling around afterwards, and she ended up meeting us in Rome. And it was really cool. We got to, got to go around Rome together and explore. And I remember on our last day in Rome, I got up early from the hotel I was staying in and my family, she got up from from the hostel that she was staying in and we met and we went to go visit, just the two of us, visit the Mamertine prison where Paul wrote Philippians. And I remember, it's early in the morning, it was gonna be a hot day, early in the morning, walking down the steps underneath 
the Roman streets. And even in the early part of the day with nobody else in the, in the small prison cell, it was just gross and the air was heavy and thick and humid. And it just, the whole place just, it was not very welcoming, if you know what I'm saying. And I just remember walking into that room and God brought this verse to my mind. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. And that was when it really clicked with me, I think really for the first time, that joy is not about our circumstances. That joy can be ours regardless of circumstances because when God is fully known, the byproduct, I believe, is joy. That we can have joy, even in grief there can be joy. Even in pain there can be joy. In abundance there can be joy. Listen, is it easier to be joyful in, in certain circumstances? Of course, I will fully, fully admit that to you. But Paul found a way to be joyful even in the worst of conditions, right? Joy is not something we conjure up. Joy is not something we achieve through having life circumstances be what they want. Joy is a gift from God. And when, again, when we know God fully, there is joy. Something that Lance has talked about in this series that, that I thought was pretty interesting was a couple of weeks ago, he said that some of us, we come from, in a church this size, we come from a variety of religious backgrounds, right? And some of us have learned some really wonderful things in our, our different backgrounds and places that we've been. But some of us, we have some things that if we're going to really engage with the Lord fully, we have some things we need to unlearn. Right? And, and for some of us, we have been taught like a relationship with God is much more focused around guilt and about shame and about performance and, and about how you're not doing enough and how you need to feel guilty and say all these prayers so that you can be okay with God. Like I've got some of that in my own background. And some of us, we need to unlearn that to know that when you draw near to God, you're not faced with your inadequacy as much as you are faced with God's grace that overcomes your inadequacy. And in that there is joy. Right? We need to remember that God is one who gives joy. He does not want you to walk around in your life with guilt and shame thinking you're not good enough. He wants you to experience the joy of knowing him fully. And we can witness to the world in such profound ways. I've seen this before in some of you. I've seen this in other people. When we have genuine, real joy in the midst of hardship, that is a gift from God. And that ministers powerfully to our world. The mind of an ambassador is joyful. It's not something we work for. It's something that God gives. Verse five, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. The mind of an ambassador is reasonable and gentle. The mind of an ambassador is reasonable and gentle. This word can that's translated reasonable can also be translated gentle. And I want to ask you, are you willing to tell the truth at all costs? And are you willing to be gentle about it? One of my favorite authors, Dallas Willard, says one of the hardest things in the world is to be right and to not hurt someone with it. <laughs> can you tell the truth? And can you be gentle about it? It's so funny to me, you know, I'm a parent of, 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 of young boys, and, and that's awesome, and they're such great kids, and, but, but there's, as you can imagine, a fair amount of bickering in my household, right? 
And those of you that have kids or have raised kids, you, like, you know this, right? And it's always just so amazing to me, like, without fail, if, I, if they're, you know, bickering and they start to yell at each other and da-da-da, and I go to intervene, and I, you know, I see behavior from one of them that, that I need to correct, and I pull the one aside, and I correct the behavior, and I'm talking about, hey, what, what, what did you do? Why, why, are, why is your brother so upset, right? I ask, what did they do? And do you think the one child begins to confess to me all the things that they have done? <laughs> No, what do they talk about? They say, well, he did this and he did that. And my favorite one is, he made me yell at him. <laughs> no, he didn't, <laughs> right? But here's the thing. I see that exact same attitude in adults all the time. I see that in people who have been following Jesus for decades all the time. We're mean and we're nasty and we're rude and what's our excuse? Well, they're doing it too. Did I miss a memo here? When were other people our standard for behavior? Our standard is Jesus. Our standard is Jesus. So when Christians are engaging in the argumentative ways of the world, when Christians are engaging in discussions where we're not debating ideas, but we're just attacking and belittling people, that is not the way of Christ. Proverbs 15.1 says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Can we tell the truth with soft words? And, and what does it say about us? Why do, we have to, why do we have to argue so much? Why do we get drawn in to these sorts of arguments that are entirely unproductive? Why do we spend our lives arguing with strangers online? I don't understand that, right? In fact, I want to show you. I brought my phone with you. Just, just phone with me. Just demonstrate something. This is what you can do. If you read something online that you don't agree with or that you find offensive, here we go. I'm going to demonstrate this for you. Ready? Here's what you do. Anyone need to see that again? Oh, this side of the room, just in case. So you read it, and you go like this, and it goes away. It disappears off the top. Or here's another thing. If you've got someone who posts a lot of nonsense, and, you know, we've all got those people, uh, you press a little button, and you click unfollow. Poof, they disappear, right? Man, my, I've got to feel my blood pressure going down just thinking about it, right? We don't have to argue. We don't have to get down into the mud. We don't have to see see. I think it's so funny. I think about Jesus in the garden, right? Jesus in the garden when he's about to get arrested. And, and what happens is, is as he's about to get arrested, Peter, like full of all this zeal and defensiveness, what does he do? He runs up and he tries, he, 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 you know, swings his sword at one of the guards and he chops off the guy's ear in defense of Jesus. And Jesus says, what are, what are you doing? He says, and I'm paraphrasing here, he says, don't you know that if I wanted to play the power and violence game, that like, I'm, like I've got plenty of resources to play that game. But that's not the game I'm playing. And he heals the guy's ear, which I would think would have gotten a lot more attention than it did, but that's just me. <laughs> he heals the guy's ear, and in doing that shows Peter, I've called you to live differently. See, too many of us, what we're doing is we're going around lopping off, uh, lopping off ears in Jesus' name, and Jesus does not need you to do that. He is quite able to defend himself, that we need to be gentle and kind. And what does, he, what does the verse say? I love this. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. See, you don't have to be defensive because Jesus will defend you. You don't have to be defensive in standing up for what is right because Jesus will defend you, 
Right? You don't have to defend, well, oh, well, we need to defend Jesus. People are attacking him and this and that. No, no, no. We need to stand up for truth. That's absolutely correct. But Jesus is quite able to defend himself. He is quite able to defend himself. He needs us to be gentle and reasonable and kind. And when we live in that way, the better way that Jesus offers, I submit to you that our arguing and angry world will take notice. Far more than they will with our harsh words. Verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The mind of an ambassador is non-anxious. The mind of an ambassador is non-anxious. There's a Bible app called YouVersion, which if you use a Bible app on your smartphone, that is almost certainly the one that you use. Uh, 35.6 billion chapters of scripture have been read all over the world in 2019 using the YouVersion app. It's pretty amazing. And they just came out and they just named the, the, their most highlighted, searched for, and shared Bible verses of 2019. And the verse that we just read, Philippians 4.6, was number one. Do not be anxious about anything. And you want to know what number two was? Isaiah 41.10. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Anxiety number one, fear number two. We're an anxious and fearful people, aren't we? <laughs> and who's we? <laughs> Humanity. <laughs> That's who. Right. In fact, if you've been here for, for a while, maybe you were here, we had a service last December where during the service we did some live polling in here and Pastor Lance led us through about 40 questions of Q&A where you all were able to respond on your smartphones. And one of the questions dealt with anxiety and depression. And we asked, do you struggle with anxiety, depression, or both? And of the over 2,000 people that answered the question, 40% said they struggle with anxiety. 40%. It's not I need you to know, it's not just you. It's everywhere right? It's everywhere. So what is this verse telling us? First of all, we need to be clear, this verse is not referencing clinical anxiety or anxiety disorders. Those are mental health challenges that God in his grace and his kindness, we, we pray for those things, obviously, and God in his grace and his kindness has given us doctors and medication, and there is absolutely nothing wrong with seeking that sort of medical care for those types of challenges. This verse is not referencing those things. What the verse is referencing is the hand-wringing and the nervousness and the, oh, I'm so worried about the future. I'm so consumed with what's going to happen in the future that I'm doing nothing today except worrying. Anybody else relate to that? That's what it's talking about. This pointless worrying, and that's why, and it's, and it's worry that accomplishes nothing. That's why Paul talks about it here. That's why Jesus, Matthew chapter 6, what does he say? He says, who of you by worrying has added even one hour to your life? I love that about Jesus right here. He's very practical. He doesn't say, don't worry because it'll make me sad. He doesn't say, don't worry because like, you're a bad Christian if you worry. He says, don't worry because it doesn't work. Like it doesn't help. It doesn't accomplish anything. But here's the problem with a verse like Philippians 4, 6. Well, it's not a problem with the verse, but you'll get what I mean. Is some of us, 
We can have somebody who's struggling with anxiety come to us, and they, maybe they would share, I'm, I'm feeling anxious about X, Y, and Z, and we might, with the best of intentions, say, well, don't you know, the Bible says, do not be anxious about anything. And now we think, oh, well, I've helped them. I've shared some biblical truth with them. Okay, that's great. When reality, what's happened is now they're walking away thinking, well, great, now I'm anxious and I feel guilty about it. (laughs) Or I'm having anxiety about my anxiety. Like this is really starting to just spiral in a very unhealthy way, right? Here's a better way to think about anxiety in light of this verse. And it's important that we find a better way because what happens when we simply share this verse as a life, boom, there you go, that's a solution. Here's what it does, is it unintentionally communicates to people that it's not safe to share about their anxiety. So they end up stuffing it and internalizing it and stewing on it, and that's not helpful. But a better way to think, if you're in the 40%, which just to be clear, I am in the 40%. I have walked many miles on the road of anxiety myself. You being anxious does not mean you're a bad person. You being anxious does not mean you're a bad Christian. You being anxious does not mean there's something wrong with you. Is it possible that your anxiety is a sign that God is trying to speak to you? See, you don't need to stuff your anxiety or deny that it exists. Is it possible that in your anxiety, God is seeking to speak to you, that God is seeking to communicate to you to say, listen, the reason why you're anxious is you're carrying something that was never meant for you to carry. You're carrying something that I did not design you to carry. So I need you to give that to me. That maybe your anxiety is an invitation from your heavenly father who loves you so much for deeper intimacy with him. 1 Peter 5, 7, what does it say? It says, cast all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Amen. Amen. Maybe your anxiety is God seeking to speak to you. Kierkegaard says that anxiety is our greatest teacher. And I think that he's onto something because anxiety can help us pay attention to maybe what's, what's underneath that. What is causing these emotions? God, are you trying to speak to me in this? Our anxiety can create greater openness to the voice of God if we handle it properly. The point of Philippians 4.6 isn't that we should never be anxious. If we were never anxious, Paul would not need to address it. The Holy Spirit would not inspire Paul and Jesus to speak these words. It is not to say we should never be anxious, but rather it is to, to clue us in to the beautiful reality that God has an alternative to anxiety and that our anxiety is a sign from our Heavenly Father that he wants to meet with us and he's inviting us to draw nearer to him. See, you and I, we are not called to deny our anxiety out of shame. Do not ever let anybody shame you for your anxiety. You do not need to deny it and pretend that it's not there. But in the same way, we're not called to dwell on it, right? Where we're basically what we're doing, dwelling on our anxiety is like using a treadmill to try to get somewhere, right? We expend a lot of energy and get all hot and sweaty, but we don't really accomplish anything, right? That's all that happens. So we're not called to dwell on it. We're not called to deny it. There's something better for us. What are we to do? 
Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer, talking to God, and supplication, telling him what you need, with thanksgiving. Why are we called to pray with thanksgiving? Is it because God needs his ego massaged, and we, God needs to hear how, much, how, how grateful we are for him? No, I don't think that's the case. God calls us to thank him primarily, well, I don't know about primarily, but at least partially for us, because when we thank God for his goodness and his kindness and his faithfulness, it reminds our forgetfulness little hearts that God is good and God is faithful and God is sovereign and we can trust him. So with thanksgiving that reminds us of God's faithfulness, that reminds us of God's promises, we present our requests to God. And I'll be real honest with you, I wish the next verse said, and then God just takes care of all your problems. (laughs) But that's not what it says. Because life is a struggle and We don't understand so much about God's ways, but what is the promise? And the peace of God that transcends understanding, that surpasses all understanding, peace that does not make sense apart from the reality of God's work in our lives, what will it do? It will guard, it's like the same word for offering military protection. It will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Jesus. Prayer, drawing near to God, is God's alternative to anxiety. May you and I, those of us who are in the 40%, let our anxiety be a reminder to us. May we let our anxiety be an invitation to keep pressing into our Heavenly Father. There is no shame, there is no guilt, only an invitation that God says, maybe you're carrying something that was not designed for you, and when you place it in my ever-capable hands, you can have real peace. Isaiah 26.3, what does it say? You keep in perfect peace he whose mind is stayed on you. Why? Because he trusts in you. When we renew our trust, when we hand over our burdens to God, it does not say our burdens go away, but it says there is peace that God gives us. Verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. See, the word think here is not a reference to like fleeting thoughts. It means literally to dwell on or to contemplate or to fill your mind with. Uh, I kind of referenced this at the beginning of the message, but the fact is our, our lives are largely a product of our thoughts. So what are you thinking about? Our lives are influenced by that which we give our attention to. So what do you give your attention to? What are you formed by? I confess to you that that, that aspects of this come very naturally to me, but then there are other aspects that I struggle with immensely. If I like so, so on the positive side, like whatever is true, I feel like a, a high value for me is, is radical honesty, and I try to just I try to be honest about my own biases and to recognize my own biases, biases, and to be the sort of person who is willing to tell the truth at all costs. And I don't I don't defend sides, I don't defend agendas. I just try to know what is true. And again, that's a high value for me. 
And then I think about what's, what's worthy of praise. Something I've talked to you about before is I just try, like, I just feel like God has done a lot of work with me in this area that I just try to live my life not feeling entitled to anything, right? To, to know that anything I have is, is grace and is a, is a gift from God and to, to live with a spirit of thankfulness for, for anything God has given me and to, to hold the things he's given me with an open hand knowing they're his anyway. Like that, that God has done, again, it's just work in my heart that that's, that's not hard for me. I love to live in that way. But, on the flip side, if I can just be very honest with you, I find too often in my life, I end up fixating on the brokenness in our world. Or I end up fixating on the brokenness that I see in the Christian world. And I dwell on it far beyond what is healthy or helpful. And I let it discourage me. I let it put me in a bad mood. I let it demotivate me. I've got a team of just amazing people here at Bridgeway, who, who somebody on that team prays for me every day of the week, and then once a month we get together, and we met recently, and I was basically confessing this in different words to all of them, that this is a real struggle for me, that I fixate on negativity far beyond what is helpful. And, and, and listen, do, do I think we need to pay attention to injustice and, 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 and oppression and dishonesty and all of those things? Do we need to be concerned about those things? Yes, absolutely. But, but in my mind, I've just what I've kind of reconciled in my own mind is I say we need to pay attention to those things so that we can pray, so that we can serve, and so that we can give. But if we're paying attention beyond that, where all it's doing is it's not accomplishing anything, it's just making us grumpy and in a bad mood, it's not very helpful, right? And trust me, I'm an expert in that. Don't mean to brag. So I want to ask you, what are you thinking about? Are you thinking about, are you allowing yourself to be, be aware of injustice and oppression so you can do something about it? But are you thinking about the good and beautiful world that God has given us? Are you thinking about God's truth? Paul says, shackled to it in a, in, in a prison cell, he says, listen, we can think about and dwell on what is negative or we can be reminded of what is good and beautiful and excellent and worthy of praise. We have a choice and I don't think like just, it's not that hard to see which one will lead to our flourishing and which one will not, right? And pardon the cliche, but I'm preaching to myself here. I need to be reminded of that again and again and again. So if you're like me, I just, I'm, I'm with you in the struggle. But we have been invited to pay attention to what is good. And when we do that, what does Paul say? He says, listen, you have learned... What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Like, I'm not just telling you to do it. I, I've lived this out before you. You've seen this. And then what's going to happen? And the God of peace will be with you. That when we dwell on what is good and beautiful and excellent and worthy of praise, it says that God is with us. Some of us might say, and I, I've said this myself, not you know, re recently, I don't feel peaceful. I don't feel close to God. Well, what are you thinking about? What are you dwelling on? When we're dwelling on the negative, when we're allowing those thoughts to fill our minds beyond what is healthy, it's no wonder we don't feel peaceful. But God says, no, no, what, what are you really, are you dwelling on, are you meditating on my beautiful truth? Are you meditating on my grace and my love for you? When we do that, the God of peace is with us. Verse 10. Oh, I didn't give you the I didn't give you the, the line for the last one. It was the, the mind of an ambassador dwells on the good. A mind of an ambassador dwells on the good. Verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. 
You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthened me. First of all, what's, what's Paul talking about in the, the verses, just briefly? So he's in Roman prison. And when you're in a Roman prison, you are completely on your own. No resources are provided for you except for a disgusting prison cell. So Paul is literally languishing, starving in prison when all of a sudden Epaphroditus shows up and he's like, hey, Paul, I've got food for you. I've got water for you. I've got clothing for you. I've got the things that you need to continue to survive. And it's all a gift from the Philippians. The Philippian church had sent all this stuff to Paul. And Paul's saying, thank you. The part of the purpose of this letter to the Philippians was it's a thank you note to them for their kindness towards him. And Paul's letting him know that, hey, I'm celebrating God's generosity, his generosity that, that, that he has done towards me through you. But then look at what he says in verse 11. He says, oh, so thank you for all this stuff, but just so you know, I, I'm actually not in need. I'm doing okay. The man is starving in prison. How can he possibly say, you know, I'm actually, I'm not in need. I'm doing fine. I'm, I'm rejoicing in the Lord. He says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. He says he's learned the secret to contentment. And, and, and come on, let's just talk for a second about contentment. Contentment, is there anything in our world that is more thoroughly sought after and so rarely found than contentment, Right? We're all seeking contentment, but so many of us struggle to find it. And Paul says, I found the secret. I found the secret. <laughs> and what's amazing is just to, to reiterate this, there is nothing from an earthly or material sense in Paul's life that would lead us to believe that he should be content. He is locked away in prison. He has no family. In fact, some scholars believe he was a widower. He's not famous. If anything, he's infamous. He's hungry. He just Life is not going well for him. He is a broken down truck and a dead dog away from the start of a country song. Like, nothing thing from a material standpoint in Paul's life would lead you to believe, I'll bet that guy's content. And he says, I found the secret. I don't know about you, but that's the sort of person I want to learn contentment from. Somebody who can say, I found contentment in all things, in all things. So quickly, what can we learn about contentment from Paul from the text. Number one, contentment is learned. He says, I have learned the secret. And the, and the Greek tense there implies learning over a long period of time. I have learned the secret. It is not natural to us. Like, like any skill, whether it's mathematics or throwing a baseball or painting or whatever, like any skill, different ones of us will be more naturally inclined to it than others. But to really figure it out, it takes practice and learning. We learn to be content. It takes time. And see, so many of us, come on, so many of us, we fall into the trap of believing that contentment is just on the other side of the next hill, don't we? 
We see, oh, if I could only, I'm, a, I'm single, if only I could get married, right? Oh, I'm married, if only I could have children. Oh, I, I've got children, if only they would move out of the house, right? Uh, I, you know, if only we would have grandchildren. Like, okay, I, if only I could get out of school and get a job, right? Okay, well, if only I could get like a job that actually pays well. Well, okay, if only I could make partner, if only I could do this, if only I could retire, if only I could die. Like, I mean, it's just we spend our lives, and I don't mean to make light of that, we spend our lives thinking that contentment is just over the next hill, right? And listen, there's nothing wrong with seeking to advance your life in different ways. I don't think there's anything wrong with looking forward to the future. If you're single and you want to be married, there's nothing wrong with that. If you're married and you want to have children, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But listen, I got to tell you, there's, I mean, there's nothing wrong with wanting to overcome challenges, saying, man, we're in a really tough spot right now, and I think life will be better if we can overcome it. That's all true. But listen, I, I gotta, you got to hear me on this. If whatever your situation is, if you cannot find contentment in the situation that you are in, I promise you, you will find a reason to be disconnected content when your circumstances change. I just listen, you gotta, you gotta hear me on this. If you cannot find contentment now, I promise you, you will find a reason to not be content when your circumstances change. I promise you. There's a preacher in Portland named John Mark Comer who I listened to quite a bit, and he said this. I thought this was really great. He said, contentment is not a destination. It's a mode of travel. That contentment is not someplace we arrive to but rather it's a way that we move through the world. Do we, do we notice things in our lives that aren't right? Are there ways we want to improve? Of course, I've got plenty of those in my own life, right? But just to live with this sense of contentment, that, that it is a good and beautiful world that God has made. And if God is with me, that there is reason for joy and contentment. There is such freedom in that, right? Contentment is something we learn. It's something that God teaches us. Number two, there are challenges of both poverty and wealth. He says, I've learned how to abound and I've learned to be brought low. And most of us in this room, I'm guessing, if we just took a poll, which challenge would you prefer, like poverty or riches? And we'd be like, Jesus, I will accept the challenge of riches in your name, right? But why is it? And having money is not, not a bad thing. But why is it that the wealthiest among us aren't the happiest? Why, as a popular rap song that came out in 1997 says, I don't know what they want from me. It's like the more money we come across, the more problems we see. Those of you my age maybe remember that song, maybe not. Or you're just shocked that it was quoted in church. I don't know. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, why is it that the wealthy among us aren't happy? Because the bottom line is, contentment's not found in money. Contentment's not, not found in having a ton, right? Contentment is not found in denying all of our desires and having nothing. That contentment, Paul says, contentment is not found in either of those things. And even in our culture today, there are those who would seek opulence and wealth and the biggest and the best and upgrade and this and that. And then there are some of us who would say, no, no, I want to deny everything and, and live with nothing. And Paul's saying, the answer is not opulence. The answer is not self-denial. I found the secret and it's not in a bank account number. It's not in a job. It's not in your address. It's not in power. It's not in prestige. It's not in having all these people pay attention to you. The secret is a person, and his name is Jesus, and contentment is found when we center our lives around him. 
that when we learn from Jesus how to center our work lives and our families and our relationships and our social lives and our church life, when we center it around him, that is where contentment is found. Contentment is not the result of our circumstances. Are there times, like I said with joy, are there times when it feels easier to be content? Yes, of course there are. But we have to understand the mindset of if only I had X, then I would be content is a myth, right? This idea of of salvation through accomplishment of the American dream is a myth. This idea of salvation through consumption is a myth. The secret of contentment is Jesus. He said, Paul says, I can can do all things. You and I, we can endure grief. We can, we can face the uncertainty of new beginnings. We can face the end of our lives. We can steward riches and, and material possessions well. We can do all things through him who strengthens us. And let's be real clear about one thing. I like football, but this verse has nothing to do with winning football games. <laughs> nothing at all. But rather, Paul is saying, what is the secret of contentment? The secret is a person, and his name is Jesus. I want to give you the last three real quick, and then we'll be done. Because the mind of an ambassador is content. Verse 14, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. The mind of an ambassador is generous. The mind of an ambassador is generous. And just big picture, what's Paul doing here? He's thanking them for his generosity. And he's saying, listen, I'm not after your money. I'm not after your stuff. But rather, what I want to see from you is I want to see you investing your resources in the kingdom because when you do that, it bears fruit. When you do that, it says, he says, I'm seeking fruit that increases to your credit. In other words, I want to see, Paul says, what happens in you when you give your resources into the kingdom of God. What happens in you is extraordinary. And you've heard me, if you've been attending Bridgeway, you've, you've heard me talk about this because I talk about this whenever I come up and talk about the offering, is that my heart for myself, my heart for my family, my heart for all of you, is that we would be so transformed by God's generosity that we would seek to be generous people, not just in this room, but outside the room, so that the communities of Rockland and Roseville and Lincoln and Granite Bay and Fair Oaks and Citrus Heights and Antelope and Sacramento and every place around, that there would be transformation that happens because of thousands of people at this church called Bridgeway who are seeking to actively live generous lives and bless their community, that we would see transformation happen through acts of generosity, big and small, that are inspired not by obligation, but because God has been so stinking generous with us that we just can't help it. That's what I want to see. The mind of an ambassador is generous. Verse 18, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied and have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. He says, your gifts not only help me, but they are pleasing to God. Verse 19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. The mind of an ambassador trusts God's provision. The mind of an ambassador trusts God's provision. Here's something I can promise you. You have been 
perfectly equipped and resourced to accomplish all that God wants to accomplish in your life. You have been equipped perfectly. Not like pretty good. I mean, you have been equipped perfectly to accomplish all that God wants to accomplish in and through your life. I'll be very honest with you. You may not have been equipped to accomplish everything you want to accomplish in your life, but you can rest in the fact that you have been given exactly what you need to accomplish God's will in your life. God's not sitting there going, man, I wanted to use you for way more, but I just kind of ran out of resources. You, have, you, you don't need to stress about this. You have exactly what you need to accomplish God's will in your life. Mind of an ambassador, trust in God's provision. Verse 20. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints in Caesar's household greet or all of the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The mind of an ambassador knows that everything is grace. The mind of an ambassador knows that everything is grace. I said at the beginning of the message that these nine things, I know it's a lot, that these nine things, these are not spiritual merit badges we earn, but that rather these are God's gift to us as our mindset is shifted, because our, our mindset matters, and as we draw near to him, as we seek to center our lives around him, he forms us in such a way that we can be agreeable. He forms us in such a way that we can be joyful. He forms us so that we can be reasonable and gentle, and so that we can, it can be a non-anxious presence in the world, and, and so that we can dwell on what is good, and on and on. I could go so that we can be really content and we can trust in his provision, right? This is all a work of grace. This is all a work of grace. Everything that God does in our lives is grace. And the, an ambassador recognizes and lives from that reality. And I believe with every fiber of my being that God who loves us wants each one of us to live from that reality as well. Amen. Can I invite the prayer team to come on up? As we close, I'm going to pray and we'll be dismissed and we'll have our prayer team come on up. And if you've, as you've listened to us walk through these, these nine things, and I, and I spent some additional time on the issues of anxiety and contentment because I just know they're so prevalent. Maybe one of these pinged something for you and you just need some prayer. You need someone to, to come alongside you. Maybe you're feeling anxious about something today and you need to come forward and just share that with someone from our prayer team and, and they can pray for you and, and help you take that burden that you're carrying that God never meant for you to carry and they can help you place it in God's hands. Right? Maybe you're struggling with contentment, that you're just locked into that mentality of, oh, contentment is just on the other side of the hill or once I upgrade or once this gets better, and maybe they just need to pray for you that, that you would recognize God's gift of contentment is Jesus. Maybe you're walking in here with something that is totally unrelated to anything we've talked about. I know around the holidays, a lot of our challenges are felt especially acute, acutely. If that's you, please come see these men and women. They would be their absolute privilege and honor to, to pray for you. So let me pray and we'll be dismissed and then we'll look forward to celebrating Christmas Eve with you. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is inspired by you and it is profitable for us. Thank you that as I closed a moment ago saying everything is grace, thank you that that is true, that you are a God who is rich in love and grace and kindness. I pray, God, for all of us who are struggling with anxiety that we might not feel guilt and shame, but that we might rather see your invitation in that. 
that there is an invitation to deeper intimacy with you and that we might be transformed as we experience more and more of your grace, as we, as we hand our burdens into your ever-capable hands. And God, some of us, were struggling with contentment. As we see the challenges around us that we're facing, contentment is hard. But God, may you speak the truth to our heart, a truth that I need so often, that contentment is found in Jesus. The secret to contentment is not possessions, it's not title, it's not prestige, it's a person, and his name is Jesus. And we're so grateful, God, for this season to be able to celebrate his birth, to be able to celebrate here as a church family. Thank you, God, for being a God who gives us reason for joy and reason for celebration. It is our delight to worship you. It is our delight to celebrate you in this season. And it's in your strong, powerful name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.